0: Good morning to each one. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 3. The book of Mark, chapter 3. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide brighter than snow. You may be today. Uh, some stanzas do it to me, that's one of them. As uh, we contemplate our own sinfulness before a holy God and revel, rejoice in, rest in the finished perfect work of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, last Sunday, let me begin with a little review from last Sunday because, uh, because what we looked at last Lord's Day in chapter 2 was was pivotal to our understanding of the gospel. In the last ten verses or so of Mark chapter 2, uh, we see the spirit of a legalist, don't we? We see uh, men, women, convinced in their heart, in their mind, that their acceptance with God is based on their own performance. And in those ten verses, it it manifests itself, that, that attitude That belief system manifests itself in two examples. And in the first example, we see people who believe they can control God through their performance, who believe that their acceptance with God is performance-based, and therefore they are fixated on their traditions. In the context, it's fasting. Nothing wrong with fasting. The only problem is the only fast ever commanded in Scripture pertains to the Day of Atonement. And so these people had developed an elaborate system of fasting which is not found in Scripture. They had developed traditions, traditions which in and of themselves might might have been good, but a good thing which had become the main thing. And their traditions actually blinded them to Christ. Because of their man-made traditions... They failed to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the second example, we see other people, again driven by this mindset, this mentality, that my acceptance with God is performance-based. And they gravitate not to their traditions, but to their regulations. And regulations, man-made regulations governing the Sabbath. Nothing wrong with the Sabbath. Creation ordinance. Nothing wrong with observing the Sabbath. But what had they done? They had created a number of extra-biblical regulations, heaped them on the Sabbath. And that they they believed, they perceived that through observing these man-made regulations, uh, they were actually pleasing God. But their man-made regulations blinded them to Christ. Their man-made regulations prevented them from resting in Christ. And so on the one hand, we have this example of man-made traditions preventing men and women from rejoicing in Christ. And on the other hand, in the the second example, we have man-made regulations preventing, prohibiting men and women from resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been said, I agree wholeheartedly, that the default mode of the heart is to seek to control God through our performance. The default mode of the heart, our natural inclination as men and women, is to think that we can control God through our performance. It's rooted in this fallacy, this idea, and we see it everywhere throughout human history, and we see it most certainly today, rooted in this idea, this mentality, that God accepts me because I obey. God accepts me because I obey. Where that fallacy takes root, man-made traditions and man-made regulations will always become the most important thing, thereby hiding, obscuring, clouding our view of the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately preventing us from rejoicing in Him and resting in Him God does not, and I must have said this, I don't know how many times, I hope at least a dozen last Lord's Day, and maybe I'll say it a dozen today. You'll forgive me if I, if, I, if I sound repetitive, but how we need to be reminded of this because we wander away from it so quickly and so easily. God's acceptance of me is not based on my obedience. God does not accept me because I obey. God accepts me, Why? Because his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, obeyed. He obeyed perfectly throughout his entire life. We call that his active obedience, whereby he submitted himself perfectly to his father's will. He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the law. And he submitted himself to his Father's will at Calvary's cross. We call that his passive obedience. Passive from the Latin, passio, suffering. His suffering, his his atonement at Calvary's cross. Whereby when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or let me back up a little bit. Firstly, when God takes hold of me by the Holy Spirit, and I believe and repent of my sin and believe and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am knit together with him. And God accepts me, not because I obey. He accepts me because Christ has obeyed, and my sin is reckoned to him, he having paid the penalty in full at Calvary's cross. And his righteousness is reckoned to me. And so let me read the stanza of that hymn one one more time. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. You can try it. Ever since the fall, Adam and Eve tried to hide their stain with what? Fig leaves. And how many people ever since then have been trying to cover their sin with fig leaves? You cannot do it, friend. You cannot do it. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Crimson red is the blood of Christ. Brighter than snow you may be today. Not your obedience. Not your righteousness, it is the perfect, pristine righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, two examples, painful examples, because if we're honest with ourselves, we can see a little bit of both in us, can't we? This tendency toward man-made traditions, which obscure our view of Christ and prevent us from rejoicing in him. Man-made regulations which, again, obscure our vision and appreciation of Christ, preventing us from resting in him. With all that said, we come to our text for today, Mark chapter 3. We're only going to take a little bite-sized chunk out of chapter 3 because there's enough in here for our meditation, for our consideration. And so I invite you to follow along. As I read the first six verses, again, he, that is the Lord Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to? Destroy him. Key verse upon which this section hangs is the fifth. He looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man stretch out your hand that's where we want to get to today we want to get to that that verse and and unpack it it's not going to take a lot of time and so what I want to do firstly is something that the the text the text in and of itself isn't really concerned with this issue but what is mentioned in the text I think uh necessitate some explanation. I'm speaking of, of the Sabbath. Uh, here we have the the Sabbath resurfacing in Mark chapter 3, the first six verses. We had the Sabbath at the end of chapter 2 from verse 23 right through to the end, verse 28. And so we have this controversy over the Sabbath in chapter 2. The controversy resurfaces now in chapter 3. And before we get to the text itself and unpack verse 5 it, it in that context... I think think it it necessitates, it requires us just to step back a little bit because I'm I'm guessing that that last week and again now that we've read this text today, uh, there might be some questions surrounding the Sabbath. And uh, what's going on here? And what is is the Sabbath anyway? And what is the big deal governing the Sabbath? So I want to step back and ask three questions that perhaps you've already asked at, at some point or maybe you are asking. If you aren't, then maybe you should be asking. I uh, have three questions concerning the Sabbath for our understanding, our better understanding of the Word of God and the will of God. If you have the sermon notes handy, those questions are written out there in black and white, very clear. I'm going to stick to those notes. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I want to get to the text. But three questions which I, which I hope will serve as well. The first is this. Are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? Maybe you've asked that. You have it there at the end of chapter 2, Sabbath, front and center. We have it here at the start of chapter 3, the Sabbath, front and center. Well, are we, here we are at the 21st century, are we supposed to observe uh, the Sabbath? Now, very careful here. The answer is twofold. The answer is no, if we are referring to a ceremonial law. Did you catch that? The answer is no, if we are referring to a ceremonial law. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt to Sinai, He constituted a theocracy, the only theocracy that has ever existed in the history of mankind. He established a theocracy with Israel, and he gave them what? A covenant to govern Israel. In that covenant, what we call the Mosaic Law, there are three kinds of laws. There are moral laws. For example, thou shalt not murder. Well, that was a law before God ever established that covenant with Israel, and that's still a law today. It is a moral law. There are, secondly, civil laws, which have to do with the governance of Israel, Israel as a theocracy. And there may be some principles and truths we can derive from Israel's civil law, but it is not a law that directly applies to us because we are not a theocracy. And there is, thirdly, in that covenant, ceremonial laws, laws governing Israel's religion. And many of those laws have to do with the Sabbath, The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the seven feasts of Jehovah. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the five Levitical offerings. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those laws governing cleanliness and uncleanliness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those ceremonial laws governing the Sabbath. And so are we supposed to observe observe the Sabbath? The answer is no if we are speaking of a ceremonial law. The answer is yes, however, if we are speaking of a creation Ordinance. A creation ordinance. What do we mean by ordinance? Well, when we go back to Genesis, no need to turn there. When we go back to Genesis and the creation account, uh, there we have an ordinance pertaining to marriage, don't we? You want to learn about marriage? Where's the place to start? The creation account. There we learn about work. You want to learn about work? It's a creation ordinance. The place to start is back in the creation account. So too with the Sabbath. It is a creation ordinance ordinance. And so let me just read a few verses for you. No need to turn there. Beginning in Genesis 1, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in those six days. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, that is the Sabbath, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Something ordained by God. How did he ordain it? He did so in two ways. We just read it. First of all, he did so by his actions. What did he do on that day? He He rested. That does not mean that God was tired, having created the entire cosmos in six days. It does not mean that he was overcome with sleepiness or fatigue and needed to recuperate. No. What does it mean? What does the text mean when it states that God rested? Three things. Let me just mention them briefly. First is this. In resting, God declared his work was finished. Finished. It's done. Six days he created the entire universe, the entire cosmos. He rests. That is, he declares it is completed. It is done. Secondly, in resting, he expressed his delight. We read in Exodus 31 that on the seventh day he rested and he was refreshed. What does it mean, the Hebrew, he was refreshed? It means he took joy. He took satisfaction. He took pleasure in all that he had created. There was beauty. There was symmetry. There was harmony. Everything served the function for which it was created in that everything magnified and glorified its creator. And God was refreshed. He was satisfied. He rested. Expression of delight. Thirdly, in resting, God prefigured, prefigured, pointed to the promised rest that he would give to his people. You see, Adam and Eve were not created in a final state. That's made clear by the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, is it not? They were not created in their final state. There remained a promised rest. After the fall, that promised rest is coupled with what? God's plan of redemption. And after man's fall, the fall of Adam and Eve and sin and death entering into the world, the Sabbath becomes what? It becomes a prefiguring of a promised rest that is coming in God. It becomes a prefiguring, a preshadowing of redemption. And so God instituted the Sabbath, how? By his works, his actions, he rested. But secondly, God instituted the Sabbath by his word. We read in the text in Genesis 2, he blessed the seventh day. We read in Exodus chapter 7, he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That is, he set it apart. The Lord Jesus himself tells us in Mark chapter 2 that the Sabbath was made for man. God set it apart as holy for man's benefit. That is, as a a gift for man. That is, for his well-being. And so the answer to our question, well, are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? If we're talking about a cer- ceremonial law, the answer is definitely no. If we, are, however, are speaking of a creation ordinance, the answer is yes. But that leads to a second question. This is a question that perplexes a lot of people, sincere believers. Well, when are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? Uh, today is what? It's not Saturday. It is Sunday. Well, why, why, why are we doing this on Sunday? Why didn't we do this yesterday on Saturday? Why do we gather on what we call The Lord's Day? The answer is fairly straightforward. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on what day? It's the first day of the week, Sunday. Having ascended to glory, the Lord Jesus, the day of Pentecost, sent forth the Holy Spirit, constituting the church on what day of the week? It was the first day. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the sending forth of what was promised in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, the baptism of the Spirit of God, constituting the New Testament church and the one people of God. These inaugurate and commence what? A new creation. You see, friends, there is an old creation and there is a new creation. There is an old creation at the head of which Adam stood. It is a fallen creation. There is a new creation at the head of which stands the risen and exalted and magnified and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. The creation ordinance is perpetual. It continues. But the day is changed to indicate what? We are no longer part of the old creation, the old order. We are no longer celebrating, observing a Sabbath in anticipation of a promised rest that is coming. We are now part of what? A new creation. And we are now what? Celebrating a rest that has come. And a rest that is rooted in the finished work, perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why when we read the book of Acts and we go to epistles such as 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we see the church gathering to worship on what day of the week? The first day of the the week, Sunday. Why? Because the early church is celebrating what? The new creation. They have not lost sight of the creation ordinance given back in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. But they understand this, that the old creation has given way to the new. We are no longer in Adam, who was the head of the old creation. We are now in Christ, the head of a new creation. We are no longer observing a day in anticipation of a rest that we hope will come, that God has promised to send. No, we now live with the reality of that rest. Christ has come. And so this day is set apart for its celebration and for its remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it leads to an obvious question, the third one. How are we supposed to observe this day? Now, last Sunday, I made mention of that movie, Chariots of Fire. Do you remember, those of you who are here, and the two key characters in that movie, Harold Abraham over here, uh, why do you run? I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. There's a legalist. Uh, Eric Little, why do you run? When I run, I feel God's pleasure. There's a man who is free, free to live for God because he is resting in God's grace. Eric Little and Harold Abram competed at the 1924 Paris Olympics. The 100 meter sprint, which was their specialty, was scheduled for what? A Sunday. And Eric Little refused to compete. Was he right? Uh, The majority, the vast majority of believers in his day applauded him. The vast majority of believers today would think he was, um, had a screw loose, right? They would think he was a a raving radical, fanatic. Um, We, 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 I better not get off on a tangent here, but we, we, um, we have, we have no, we have no problems elevating our sports heroes today. And I wish we wouldn't so quickly because they um, get involved in, in sexual indiscretion, public drunkenness, all sort of chest beating and, and everything else, and they simply mention the word Jesus and we exalt them as a hero of the faith. I really wish we wouldn't do that. I wish we were looking for men of conviction, uh, men with stable character, men who have persevered under trial and in affliction and uh, had that sweet savor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Eric Little had all of that. And based on his convictions, right or wrong, he decided he he did not want to participate in that race scheduled for a Sunday. And so he ran in the 400 meter and actually won won gold in, in, in that event. Was he right? Was he wrong? How are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? Let me rephrase the question because I've been a little misleading in how I've stated these questions. Are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? When should we observe the Sabbath? How are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? Change the word observe to celebrate. And I think it just changes the entire complexion of, of, of the question. Uh, how are we supposed to celebrate the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, Sunday? You see, th- this, this isn't something that is to be a drudgery. This isn't, this isn't a commandment with, with a hundred subset of commandments of do's and don'ts that we have to, we have to be careful every, every Sunday. Well, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? If that's the way we approach the Lord's day, we have missed the boat entirely. This is a day to be celebrated. This is a gift from God. This is a day when we commemorate the new creation, that Christ has indeed risen from the dead, That Christ has indeed ascended on high and is at the right hand of his his Father in glory. That that Christ has indeed, as as was promised and foretold, sent forth the Spirit of God. And we are now one with him. We celebrate the new creation. We, We rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we live in anticipation of that final rest that is coming, that beatific vision. And faith will give weight to sight. And we will see the Lord Jesus Christ as he is, and we will be like him. How are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? Wrong question. How are we to celebrate the Lord's day? It is a gift from God. It is something he has given to us for our benefit. Something he has given to us for our well-being. And so seek him, brother, sister in the preaching of his word. Desire to be strengthened through fellowship. Put away the anxiety of your work. Spend time with family and friends. Visit someone in the hospital. Take a nap. Take a walk. Read a book. Finish a puzzle. Celebrate the new creation. Celebrate your rest in Christ and understand that this is for our spiritual well-being and that this is actually a gift, a gift from God. changes the question entirely, doesn't it, when you, when you word it, phrase it in that way. With the advent of iPods, nothing against iPods, iPads or iPhones for that matter, with the rise of an entertainment-fueled society, with the anxiety of a fractured daily existence, with the constant weight of the burdens of life, it is time for us to reevaluate what it means to celebrate this great gift from God. A time of rejoicing. A time of celebration. A time again when we celebrate the new creation in Christ. When we revel, a time when we revel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and joyfully seek him in his own appointed means. And a time when we get a foretaste. And what would you rather be doing on the Lord's day than this? When we get a foretaste of what awaits us in glory. The final consummation of all things. And the promised and anticipated beatific vision. Let me just add a word to that for unbelievers. Because if you're here and you're not a Christian, this... The categories, you may not be able to piece all this together, so let me just speak directly to unbelievers for a moment. You hear this word Sabbath, it's a little fuzzy, a little hazy, a little confusing. Simply understand this. Uh, God created Adam and Eve perfect in his image. Uh, God created Adam and Eve for, for the sole purpose of glorifying and magnifying him. How? By delighting in him. And so Adam and Eve were made perfect, and with the ability, having been made in the image of God, of, of resting in God, of enjoying God, of finding their soul's end, satisfaction in God. The fall, when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled, the fall ruined all of that. And man's rest, ever since, has been replaced with what? Restlessness. And ever since, and you can understand this, friend, if you aren't a believer, ever since the fall, you just look at the history of humanity, man has been marked and scarred and marred by what? restlessness. You look at it, the evidence on the macro level of wars and conflicts and social upheaval. You look at it on the micro level of the disintegration of the family, of substance abuse, of sexual deviation. Everywhere we look, on a grand scale or on, or on a lesser, lesser scale, we go from the national to the personal. Wherever we look, the evidence is overwhelming. It, it, it cries what? It declares what? That man is not at peace. That man is restless. And he has been restless ever since the time of the fall because he has been separated, cut off, from the only true source of rest. You see, man is created to rest in God. Man is created to walk with God. Man is created to fellowship with God. Man is created to find the end of his mind, all that is true, the end of his affections, all that is is good and beautiful, the end of his will. He is meant to find the end of his soul in God. And that has been impossible ever since the fall, given man's sinful condition. And the world can't do anything about it, Fred. Many people turn to alcohol and other substances, don't they? Many people turn to all sorts of of, of perversion and other forms of pleasure. Many people turn to things which are actually good in and of of themselves, marriage, family, sports, recreation, all in in a futile attempt to do what? Somehow stifle that uneasiness. That restlessness. But the world can't do it. The world cannot provide rest. It offers a plethora of self help books. Personal favorite chicken soup for the soul, right? It offers CDs, reproducing the sounds of forests, birds, oceans, and rainfall. It offers yoga, Eastern exercises, transcendental meditation. It offers vibrating chairs, massage machines, special lights, scented candles, pseudo-aquariums, and an assortment of balls, beads, and body rollers. And on and on and on it goes. All the while, the world incapable of addressing man's greatest need, the restlessness of our own soul. Are you with me, unbeliever? Now, here's the good news. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is rest. We sang it earlier, Chris led us beautifully in in that song taken right out of Romans 5. Having been justified by faith, we have what? There's the starting point. Peace with God. The enmity, the hostility, the hatred rooted in our own sinfulness is taken out of the way because the Lord Jesus is taken out of the way at Calvary's cross. We are now made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. We now have peace with God. And that peace leads to an inner tranquility of soul that is rooted in this unchanging reality known as fellowship with God. I am now one with him. My soul has returned home. My soul has been wandering and has finally found its way back. To its proper center and rest, God Himself. So I'm friendly, unbelie- that's what the Sabbath is all about. That, 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 that is the, the, the macro message of the Sabbath. That a rest was lost at the time of the fall. And this rest is regained through one means and one means alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, with all that said a great deal more than I intended to say. Go back with me. Do you remember where? To Mark chapter 3. And take a look again at the fifth verse, the pivotal verse. And he looked around at them. Again, that's the Lord Jesus. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, this is the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And so the Lord Jesus, angry. It is a compassionate anger. That comes out in the next statement because he's grieved at what? Their hardness of heart. What is the heart? It is the soul. What is the soul? I just stated it. Let me repeat it. The soul is made up of the mind. With the mind we reason. And it is made up of the affections, the principal affections being love and hate. And it is made up of the will, the power of Of choice. Well, these men, their hearts are what? They are hardened. Meaning what? That their minds are darkened to truth. Truth that is staring them in the face. Their affections are hardened. Their, Their hatred is actually fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, their will is enslaved to their sin. And they will not. They refuse to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord Jesus looks around at these men. And he is angry, a passionate anger, a compassionate anger. Why? Because he is grieved with the state and the condition of their souls. Now, three things I want us to understand about hardness of heart that emerge from these six verses. The first is this, the object of this hardness. It's found in a little phrase at the start of verse 2. They watched Jesus. This doesn't mean they're simply looking at Jesus. It doesn't mean they simply see him or observe him. No, they are watching. There's something sinister here. They're looking for an opportunity to accuse him. Why? Because they oppose him. This opposition has been growing. Go back to chapter 2 and look at the 7th uh, the verse where the opposition begins. Why does this man speak like that? The Lord Jesus has just forgiven the paralytic his sins. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's the start of the opposition. Look now at verse 16. It begins to build. Why does he, that is the Lord Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? He is just saved miraculously. A manifestation of his sovereign grace He is just called and saved Levi, a tax collector, a sinner. And this is the response of the Pharisees. Why does he eat? Why does he have anything to do with, with, with the scum of the earth? People like that, tax collectors and sinners. And the opposition builds in the 18th verse, same chapter. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then we see it again in the 24th verse, still in chapter 2. Uh, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so this opposition has been building, this opposition to the ministry and the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now it reaches this climax here in the first six verses of chapter 3. They are watching him. Because they are looking for an opportunity to accuse him. That is the object of their hardness of heart. Now understand, we need to put it in a larger context. Understand just how, just how sinful this is. You think, you think of their hardness of heart, you think of their attitude toward the Lord Jesus, and think of it in light of everything they know. Now what have they seen so far? They've seen the Lord Jesus manifest his creational authority, Right? They've seen him cast out demons, Satan's legions with a word. They have seen him rebuke demons. They have seen him heal a paralytic, a leper, all sorts of diseases. And so they have seen his creational authority. They have seen his judicial authority. That is, the paralytic is lowered at the feet of the Lord Jesus. He looks at the paralytic and declares, My son, your sins are... Forgiven that is judicial authority, God alone has authority to forgive sins, and they've seen not only not only his creational authority, not only his judicial authority but his scriptural authority as he sweeps aside their man-made traditions as he sweeps aside their man-made regulations and then made, makes this awesome declaration and revelation, "I am the Lord of the Sabbath, in other words, I am the Lord of creation, I am the fulfillment. Of the law. Here are these declarations. It is in the face of his overwhelming authority, it is in the face of all that he has revealed concerning his true identity that they now manifest their hardness of heart toward the Lord Jesus Christ darkened in their minds, hardened in their affections, and their wills enslaved to their own sinfulness. That's the object. Look, in a sec- look, secondly second feature of this hardness, it's nature. This comes out in verses 3 and 4. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Because he knows what they're thinking. The Lord Jesus that entered the synagogue It's the Sabbath. Uh, according to their man-made regulations, you're not allowed to do any any kind of work on the Sabbath. Hmm, if the Lord Jesus were to heal this man, I guess that's work. Therefore, he will have broken the Sabbath. Therefore, we can accuse him of blasphemy. We can oppose him. We'll have, we'll have a cause to oppose him. The Lord Jesus knows their thought process. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He calls the man over real close, and then he poses this question to the Pharisees themselves, very direct. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life? Or to kill. Now Matthew, in his parallel account, he adds a little more. And according to Matthew, the Lord Jesus adds another question. Listen to this one. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? What's he saying? He's forcing them to look at their hearts. Uh, You all know, if you were to leave the synagogue right now this afternoon, and you were on your way home, and you saw a lamb or sheep from your flock falling into a pit, falling into something that couldn't get itself out, on the basis of pity alone, you would help that stupid animal out of that pit, wouldn't you? You would have enough compassion to help a sheep get out of that pit. And you would never think for one moment you had broken the Sabbath. Here is a man. This is a man. Made by God. Created in the image of God. With a withered hand. It is within my power. And I have authority to heal this man. Have you no compassion? That's what he's saying to them. He is showing the nature of their hardness. That they they, their hatred for him is so vile, their hatred runs so deep that that they are beyond feeling. They are beyond any ounce of compassion for the dilemma and the situation of this man. All they can think is, "Boy, if he heals him, we've got him, and we'll be able to charge him with breaking the Sabbath." There is the depth of the extent of. Their hardness of heart. And I look thirdly at its fruit. The sixth verse. The Pharisees went out because the Lord Jesus does heal the man. Stretch out your hand. End of verse 5. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out, rejoicing and celebrating and worshiping God. Not likely. The Pharisees went out, praising the name of the Lord Jesus and telling everybody everywhere what he has just done. Not likely. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. There is the fruit of hardness of heart. This is interesting. This is rather illuminating because the Pharisees here are joined with another group, a group of scoundrels, the Herodians. So We have the Pharisees over here, the Herodians over here. A little bit of historical context. Uh, The Lord Jesus, uh, this is somewhere around 30 A.D. Uh, You go back three centuries in time, so maybe the fourth century B.C., and the world empire is now Greece. Assyria is gone. Babylon is gone. Persia is gone. A man by the name of Philip of Macedonia has united all of the Greek city-states. His son, a real character by the name of Alexander the Great, or maybe not so great, has extended the Greek empire all the way to India, engulfing northern Africa and the Middle East. And so Israel is brought under the control of the Greek Empire. The Greeks have a program known as Hellenization, whereby they're going to make everyone Greek. And so they spread Greek culture. They spread Greek language. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek, Koine Greek, Common Greek. They spread Greek law. They spread Greek uh, government institutions, uh, they spread Greek uh, philosophy and religion. Everywhere they go, they spread Greek culture. Well, within Israel, there are some who embrace it. They think Some Jews think this is fantastic. There are some Jews who are diametrically opposed to it. In the third century before Christ, this causes a tremendous political social rift within the nation of Israel that is among Jews. Those who are pro-Greek, those who are anti-Greek. That, that battle, that running battle, that rift is now exemplified in Christ's day between these two parties. You have the Pharisees. They are anti-Greek. And you have the Herodians. They are pro-Greek. Understand this. Do not miss it. They despise each other. They absolutely hate each other. They have no time for each other. And yet what do we see here? The big group hug. They're going out holding hands. Why? Because they've now found something they hate even more than each other. The Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Christ is offensive to the religious and irreligious. He is offensive to moralists and relativists. He is offensive to conservatives and liberals. He is offensive to traditionalists And modernists, the Lord Jesus Christ is offensive to all. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is a bright, shining, burning light that penetrates into the inner caverns and recess of the soul. And forces us to look at ourselves. And shows us exactly what we're like. And then declares, you have no hope outside of me. And their hearts are hardened to it. They want nothing to do with it. And the fruit of their hardness of heart now magnifies itself. And they plot to do what? How to destroy it. Now let me cut to the chase. And let me be very clear. And let me ask, friend, is it possible this very day that Christ is angry with some of us? A compassionate anger, not a passionate anger. A compassionate anger. Because we grieve him with our hypocrisy, the double life we live. We grieve him with our superficiality. We grieve him with our indifference. We grieve him with our stubbornness and callousness. We grieve him with our own hardness of heart. How do I know? That could be me. How do I know? Does Christ's compassion soften our hearts as we see him touching the leper? That's a great question. Does Christ's compassion soften our hearts as we see him touching the leper? Does Christ's power amaze us as we see him casting out Satan's legions? Does Christ's authority break us as we hear him proclaim, I am Lord of the Sabbath? Does Christ's mercy melt us as we hear him declare, My son, your sins are forgiven. If the preaching of God's word, that is Christ, the preaching of Christ, is not softening our hearts, guess what? It is hardening our hearts. The preaching of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of God's word is always effectual. God is not mocked. When his word is proclaimed, it is effectual. Here's the sad reality. It is either effectual unto salvation or unto damnation. Either way, God is glorified. Either way, he is glorified. If The preaching of his word is not softening our hearts. It is in all likelihood hardening our hearts. Heed the word of the psalmist. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Pray with me. Our Father, you are a great God and a great King above all gods. In your hand are the depths of the oceans and the heights of the mountains. The earth is yours and all that is in it. Splendor and majesty are before you. Strength and beauty surround you. We ascribe to you all glory, honor, and praise. Incline our hearts, we pray, to your word. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Our Father, give us understanding that we might live. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.